Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and in this last week of the year between Christmas and the New Year, as the year comes to a close, we're looking back on Background Briefing's coverage of the major stories and issues of the year 2021. Today we will deal with climate change and the accelerating warming of the planet after four years of willful neglect by Trump as the window of time to make radical changes away from our fossil fuel-based economy to a clean energy future narrows before global temperatures pass a tipping point of no return. We'll begin with a background briefing broadcast from February the 3rd of 2021 when we spoke with Michael Mann, a distinguished professor of atmospheric sciences at Penn State, who contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Prize for Peace and is the author of The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics and Driving Us Crazy. And his latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. He joined us to discuss how the first climate war was about denialism and now the new climate war is underway in which the polluters are shifting blame away from themselves onto the people as though global warming is about personal responsibility, not the result of the fossil fuel industry and the politicians they own who are resisting and delaying the overdue and urgently needed change to alternative energy. Then we will go to a broadcast of background briefing in which we covered climate change on May the 24th of 2021 with the philosopher-author Shrekko Horvat, the author of Poetry from the Future, Welcome to the Desert of Post-Socialism, and The Radicality of Love, in which we spoke about his latest book, After the Apocalypse. We discussed how, since progress and catastrophe are two sides of the same coin, the combination of the climate crisis and nuclear risks presents humanity with a choice between radical reinvention of the world or its destruction. Then finally, we'll go to a broadcast of background briefing from November the 14th, 2021, when we discussed how our fragile planet is hanging by a thread and the last thing it needs is a meek and weak COP26 agreement. We began as the final agreement was emerging from the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, in which China joined with India in watering down the language from a phase out of coal to a phase down. Nevertheless, the COP26 president claimed an historic agreement that keeps the 1.5 degree centigrade limit on rising global temperatures, quote, within reach. Joining us was Laurie Laybourne Langton, an award-winning researcher and writer and an associate fellow at the UK's Institute for Public Policy Research, where he leads a project developing policy responses to environmental breakdown. Previously, he was the director of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change and also worked in the House of Lords, where he focused on post-crash macroeconomic policy. And he's the author of Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial free, corporate free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. 
To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Michael Mann, a Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He has received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award, selection by Scientific America as one of the 50 leading visionaries in science and technology. And additionally, he has contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2020, he was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. He's the author of numerous books, including Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines, and The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. And his latest book just out is The New Climate War, The Battle to Take Back Our Planet. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Mann. Thank you, Ian. Always good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the old climate war is the 30-year-long war waged by fossil fuel companies and their enablers to deflect blame and to delay action on climate change. And in effect, their tactic has been to emphasize the individual responsibility, individual behavior like recycling and thus placing the responsibility for fixing climate change on the shoulders of the individual, not those that create the pollution and the problem in the first place in the way that the gun industry have deflected blame with their slogan, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Do you think that that battle is over, Michael? No, so that's uh, what I actually characterize as the new climate war. Um, the, the old climate war is really the effort by fossil fuel interests, um, you know, as you're describing, to discredit the science, to literally deny the reality of climate change. And that war, I argue, is over because it's been won by Mother Nature. Um, and I don't really have to convince Californians, uh, you know, who are listening to this interview about that. The record wildfires that California has seen, uh, the bushfires that I saw in Australia when I was in sabbatical down there last year, the hurricane season we had uh, this year in the Gulf Coast, um, the literally the unprecedented onslaught of uh, devastating extreme weather events that have sort of communicated to the public the reality of climate change and makes it very difficult for talking heads to claim it isn't happening because people can see it with their own two eyes. But, you know, they haven't given up. The fossil fuel interests who continue to make record profits, all they care about is that we remain addicted to fossil fuels. They don't care it's whether we deny that climate change is real or that we simply don't act for an array of other reasons. And so they've moved on to these other tactics to try to block any meaningful action. And that includes, as you say, sort of deflection 
from individual behavior, which is important, but they've tried to characterize or frame that as the solution, when in fact we need policies, we need systemic changes, we need incentives for renewable energy, price on carbon, uh, all of these things that they don't want to see happen that are critical if we're to make this transition. That's just one of a number of tactics that they're using in this new climate war. So one of the few... <laughs> I'm always casting around for something optimistic, Michael, and I've been covering a little bit of what Biden's been doing in these flurry of executive orders. And there is reason to be optimistic, surely, with the GM and car manufacturers making the target of 2035 to have all electric fleets and John Kerry covering the foreign policy side, Gina McCarthy on the domestic side. They seem to be incredibly serious, and Biden himself has labelled climate change as a maximum threat. What about the national security side of it? Are the intelligence people and the military people making this a priority? I, I think they are. Uh, you know, John Kerry, who is appointed as the special envoy on climate, has a seat on the National Security Council. Uh, we've never had that before. Uh, somebody who is tasked with our diplomatic relationships with other countries um, aimed at achieving meaningful climate action uh, also has a seat on the National Security Council. And that communicates very clearly to the world that we do see this as a security threat and that it will be climate change will be absolutely a consideration in our defense policies and how we approach issues of national security and diplomacy. So I think that's a good sign. I think there are, in fact, as you just alluded to, a number of reasons for cautious optimism, you know, with Biden having campaigned on climate, coming in with a mandate to act on climate, and signaling very clearly uh, early on that he intends to make good on that commitment um, to his supporters and the American people. And we've seen some real bold action. Um, there are you know, reasons to think that you know, we are at the cusp of meeting this challenge. And really the purpose of my new book, The New Climate War, is to say, look, we're so close now. Um, and the book went to press, of course, before we knew um, that uh, Biden uh, was elected president and would be leading with this bold agenda. But it sort of one could see things moving in that direction. And so the point of the book is we are so close to finally achieving the action that's necessary. We can't allow these few these few obstacles that are being tossed in our way by fossil fuel interests, those promoting their agenda, the inactivists, as I call them, the forces of inaction. Let's recognize their tactics. Let's push back against them. Let's defend against them. And let's continue to move forward. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize, and he is the author of a number of books, including Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics and Driving Us Crazy. And his latest book, Just Out, is The New Climate Wars, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. So let's talk about how you motivate people to recognize this dire threat to the yeah. very existence on this planet, or at least the, the way of life that we're used to. And when you think about your children, your grandchildren, I, for one, do 
wonder about what kind of world it will be yeah. just based upon what we've seen so far. And these giant, you know, ice sheets breaking up and the forest fires and the, particularly the ones that you witnessed in Australia, Michael. Yeah. It's difficult not to sort of go into doom and gloom, but you don't want to reinforce despair, obviously. Right. And, you know, the forces of uh, inaction, the inactivists have, in in fact, fanned the flames of doomism, <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, oddly enough, uh, because they realize that, um, you know, if you can be led to believe that it's too late to do anything uh, about a problem, it potentially leads you down the same path of inaction as outright denial. Um, it leads to disengagement. And the inactivists, the fossil fuel interests who are fighting this new war, they don't care about the path you take. They just care about the destination. They just want you disengaged. And fanning the flames of doomism is one of the ways that they've actually done that. Um, in fact, I have an op-ed uh, coming out in The Hill tomorrow morning uh, about this and actually uh, commenting on some uh, recent statements by the former Republican governor of Indiana, Mitch Daniels, and he was recently quoted in the Washington Post saying if and he's he's been a climate change denier in the past and he's clearly a critic of uh, meaningful climate action. He doesn't want us to uh, decarbonize our civilization. And he, he actually used, you know, the argument. He made the claim that, look, these climate models, if we're to believe them, indicate that it's already too late to stop the warming. <laughs> so this really is an argument that's being used by inactivists to disable us, to disengage us, and we have to recognize that. And here's the thing, Ian, you know, you, you, you make a, an important point. We are committed to some bad things already, right? Dangerous climate change, in some sense, has arrived if you live in California and you've witnessed the, the, the destruction, the death and destruction of these unprecedented wildfires in recent years, um, and the, the uh, unprecedented droughts that California has had to contend with. Australia, Puerto Rico, which was devastated by an unprecedented storm, and the list goes on. Dangerous climate change has arrived. So we're not going to avoid dangerous and damaging climate change impacts, but we can still prevent the worst from happening. And that's what's so important here. Uh, there is urgency, um, as I say in the book and in this op-ed, but there is also agency. We can make a difference. And there is a piece of good news from the science over the last decade or, or so as we've done sort of more um, realistic modeling experiments that incorporate the behavior of the ocean and, and plant life when it comes to the global carbon cycle. So we put carbon into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels, but the ocean takes carbon out of the atmosphere. The terrestrial biosphere plants take carbon out of the atmosphere. And if you model that system in its entirety, what you find is that if we stop emitting carbon now, yes, there is the continued warming effect of the CO2 we've already put into the atmosphere. We used to call that committed warming, and it made us it led to predictions that we would see continued warming for decades to come. But offsetting that is the fact that if we stop burning carbon, the oceans and the plants uh, continue to take carbon out of the atmosphere and CO2 levels start to drop. And they start to drop in a way that offsets that so-called committed warming effect. So you basically just get a flat line, which is to say, if we stop burning now, burning carbon now, surface temperatures basically flatten out within a few years. We can prevent continued warming up of the surface of the planet. Now, there are other sort of longer legacy 
components of the system. And you allude to the ice sheets and the sea level rise associated with the collapse of the ice sheets. Some of that may be locked in just from the warming we've already caused. So I don't want to be a Pollyanna. Um, there are still some detrimental long-term impacts that are now baked in, but we can prevent much of the worsening of the problem by just stopping <laughs> the, what's causing the problem, which is the burning of fossil fuels. So rather than fall for the trap of having the responsibility shift to, to the individual away from those that do the polluting, the fossil fuel industry, yeah. what about the crisis that we're in now with COVID, which will kill you know at least half a million or more americans thanks to yeah. trump's incompetence and ignorance and what's attending all of that of course is science denial yeah and and you're making the opposite case that you have to listen to the science and yeah. the first climate war was about science denial that one's over the new one is about shifting responsibility onto the individual as opposed to the polluter but now we have at least learned some lessons have we not the big crisis after this one is solved, and it will, will be solved by science, meaning vaccinations, and maybe people will, will learn a lesson from that to come back to science. But the big one ahead, of course, is climate change. Yeah. So that's the battle ahead. But what do we learn from the current battle? Because just in my own case, Michael, yeah. I have a home studio now from which I'm recording now this right. conversation, and I don't drive in every day on the freeway being stuck in traffic sure. morning and evening, belching pollution into the air in a completely dysfunctional way. And millions and millions of Americans are now using Zoom and other ways to work and telecommute. Yeah. So how much are we learning just as individuals, not in terms of our responsibility, but in terms of that we can actually live a better life without contributing to global warming? Yeah, that's right, Ian. I think there are a number of really important lessons that we can draw from what we've just been through over the last year. And, you know, I don't want to in any way uh, suggest that, you know, it's a positive thing um, that this has happened. Uh, it's a tragic, uh, you know, thing. And as you allude to, because of a president who refused to listen to the word of science, because it it conflicted with his ideology, his um, his efforts to be reelected. He realized that if we took the actions necessary to to deal with this threat, he he perceived that it would hurt his reelection um, chances. Probably the opposite was the case. But nonetheless, because of his misguided views, which were guided by ideology and power and maintaining power, we, we lost, a, you know, as you said, the better part of a million lives will likely be lost by the time this is over. And a big part of why is because we didn't listen to what the public health science was telling us, what science experts like Anthony Fauci were telling us. So, you know, one of the things that coronavirus communicates is that science denial is deadly. And we can literally measure that toll in hundreds of thousands of human lives when it comes to the pandemic. But you know what? Climate change will lead to even greater losses of life if we don't do something about it. And so lesson number one, science denial is deadly. And I think the pandemic has taught us that. It's also taught us, as you allude to, um, that we do have agency. Once again, we can change uh, our practices and our lifestyles in a way that makes life better for us and, and everybody else. Um, and that's part of the solution. Of course, if you look at 
you know, the 2020 numbers, they will have come down, uh, carbon emissions will come down by about 7%, or that's what the estimates seem to be now. They came down about 7%. Now, that's great news, but here's the bad news. We've got to bring them down another 7% next year, and then a 7% beyond that every year for the next decade, if we are to remain on track to reduce our carbon emissions below the levels that will bake in the worst impacts of climate change, more than a degree and a half Celsius or roughly three degree Fahrenheit warming of the planet. To do that, we've got to reduce carbon emissions at least as much as that every year for the next several years. And we've gone about as far as we can go with lifestyle change, voluntary measures. The only way we achieve those deeper reductions is literally by decarbonizing our economy by decarbonizing society. So yeah, there's sort of a foot in the door and we've seen that we can impact those global carbon emissions, but voluntary measures and lifestyle changes alone aren't gonna be enough. We need systemic change. And a little bit of more good news though, is that we're starting to see that systemic change with the new administration and with a Congress that seems intent on passing meaningful climate action. And let's talk about the hopeful and practical plans that you're putting forth in your book, um, a Marshall Plan, taking that as a kind of model, the Civilian Climate Corps. Let's go through some of the the measures that can be taken to mobilize activism and spread it literally to every corner of the country. Yeah, absolutely. In uh, in a recent uh, op-ed, I actually used that analogy, uh, the Marshall Plan. You know, in this case, we need to provide resources. We have to help along those communities that are going to be impacted by this necessary transition. We need to transition away from fossil fuels uh, toward renewable energy. But we don't want, you know, people to be left behind. And so we do need programs to go into those communities to try to revitalize them. And that's one of the things I really like about the the Biden uh, plan or the executive actions that uh, the Biden administration has announced. There are specific programs that they are promoting uh, the funding uh, for that will help, again, fund efforts to revitalize those communities, fossil fuel communities, Uh, this civilian climate core, this idea of creating jobs for people who will go out and actually help solve this problem, engaging in practices, forestry practices, um, agricultural practices that are climate friendly and carbon friendly, and who will restore some of the damage that's been done to uh, wildlife, to our environment. And there is this recognition that that we do have to help people along through this difficult transition, but we need to make the transition. The other thing that it recognizes is the importance of helping out frontline communities, low-income minority communities, who are often the most impacted by environmental degradation. And they (laughs) typically had the least role in creating the problem. They aren't the major emitters. Um, Those with more wealth and affluence are the ones who have uh, produced more of the carbon pollution. So there's a recognition of you know, the importance of uh, climate justice, of recognizing the the social justice component of uh, what we need to do here. Um, You know, here's the thing. Biden's plan comes about as close to constituting a Green New Deal as you could possibly do with executive actions alone. He goes about as far as the administration can go. To go that next yard, we're going to need legislation to to complement the executive actions that are being taken, that lock in 
you know, some of these uh, systemic changes. And that's going to be a battle. But I think now that uh, Democrats control both houses of Congress, I think it can happen. It may come down to using reconciliation and a simple majority of 50 votes and a tie-breaking vote by the vice president to pass climate legislation through, you know, uh, reconciliation. But we're going to get climate legislation that's going to complement the executive actions that have been taken. So that's the path forward. Let's not allow these obstacles that the inactivists continue to throw in our way. Deflection, division, trying to get us to fight with each other so we don't represent a united front demanding change. False solutions like uh, geoengineering. Uh, we can just manipulate uh, our global environment in some other way to offset the warming. Uh, none of these paths forward are productive or safe or sensible. And we have to make sure that we keep our eye focused on the prize, which is making sure that our policymakers support policies that will decarbonize our civilization as quickly as humanly possible. So just in the last couple of minutes, Michael, there is, of course, you mentioned earlier the use of carbon pricing, and obviously we've lost four years under Trump. But one of the things that you mentioned is optimistic is that young Republicans are becoming much more aware of the dangers of climate change and the the need to deal with it. So in terms of a broader coalition, are you confident that it can be built? I mean, uh, as I say, I worry about my grandkids, um, but, you know, the millennials and others like Greta Thunberg are active and she's endorsed your book, by the way. So give us a sense just in the last couple of minutes here what, how you see this real critical mass of activism that's necessary. Yeah, I think that's been a game changer, uh, Ian. It really has. Uh, Greta Thunberg, the the youth climate movement, they've really recentered the conversation where it needed to be all along uh, about the the ethical quandary of us destroying this planet for future generations and the you know the the, the inequity uh, that those who had the least role in creating the problem are the ones who are already suffering the greatest consequences. And so this really has to be not just about the science and the economics and the, and the policy and the politics, but about the, the fundamental ethics uh, behind our need to, to act. And, and, and these, you know, there has been this confluence of the youth climate movement, um, the, the, the uh, sunrise movement, um, and the social justice and, and racial justice movements that are playing out and, and the intersection between all of them that has really created a very important moment. You know, that moment is here. This is our moment. We can make it happen. And that's the purpose of my book, to make sure we recognize the obstacles that remain and don't allow them to obstruct our path forward, because this is our opportunity now. Well, Michael Mann, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Mann, who's Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He's received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award, selection by Scientific American as one of the 50 leading visionaries in science and technology. And additionally, he contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2020, he was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. He's the author of numerous books, including The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines, and The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics and Driving Us Crazy. 
And his latest book just out is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And now from Background Briefings, broadcast from February the 3rd of 2021, we'll go to a broadcast when we covered climate change on May the 24th of 2021. Excuse me, mister, but is a natural oil in the sea and the pollution in the air, mister? Whose could that be? So excuse me, mister, but I... Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shreshko Horvat, who is a philosopher and author who has published more than 10 books translated into 15 languages, including poetry from the future, What Does Europe Want?, and Welcome to the Desert of Post-Socialism, and The Radicality of Love. He's the co-founder of the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025 and a council member of the Progressive International, and his latest book is After the Apocalypse. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shreshko Horvat. Hello, and I'm really glad to be talking to you and your listeners today. Well, thanks for joining us. And I obviously want to talk about your book and all that you've brought to the table here in terms of the future of mankind, the future of the planet. And uh, you wrote your book, and then just as you're about to have it published, uh, the COVID pandemic happened, so you had to go back and rewrite it. But before we get to the apocalypse here in the United States, we have a major threat against American democracy itself. We saw a manifestation of that on the assault on the Capitol on January the 6th. And now we're heading into an election. A recent poll in the United States found, a survey found that a majority of Republicans agree with the statement that the traditional American way of life is disappearing so fast that we may have to use force to save it. And given that the Republicans plan to cheat and win the election in 2022 and take over the House and Senate by cheating, by suppressing votes and by gerrymandering, etc. And they're quite naked about it. And so you'll have a situation where you'll have an election where the Republicans will decide, not the people at the polls, but the Republicans will just simply declare themselves winners. And there's likely to be a massive backlash. So here we are in the United States in the process of heading towards a kind of pseudo-democracy that you have in Hungary and uh, Turkey and even in Russia itself. So I'm wondering how we could even get to the addressing the issues that are so pressing in your book about saving the planet and saving mankind from itself if our government itself is going to be paralyzed and and even in a form of civil war. So that's my initial concern. Does this resonate with you? Uh, unfortunately, yes, because uh, here over the pond, to say so, here in Europe, uh, the situation is also worrying. I mean, democracy is dying out everywhere. You have authoritarian states, as you mentioned already, from Hungary, Poland, uh, to many others. And you could have seen it also with handling the COVID-19 crisis and in which ways 
uh, this kind of biopolitics surveillance state or what some authors would call surveillance capitalism is actually uh, uh, developing even further, even deeper, colonizing uh, daily lives. Uh, and uh, what I would say, having in mind what is currently happening in the United States, but also in all other places in the world, is that uh, we are not just simply living after the apocalypse, uh, which is the name of uh, my most recent book, but we are also living after the end of history. Uh, you know, probably in the United States, people will still remember this famous thesis by Francis Fukuyama, uh, that uh, we reach the end of history and that liberal democracy uh, is the only winner in town, uh, which means that uh, all societies are, uh, so to say, uh, naturally progressing towards more democracy, towards liberal democracy, uh, and so on. But what you could have seen uh, in the last years, and uh, especially after the last financial crisis, 2007-2008, uh, is that uh, ideology is back uh, from all sides. Uh, I mean, now you have the alt-right ideology, uh, but you have also all sorts of apocalyptic movements, uh, uh, whether it is the libertarian movements from Silicon Valley, uh, who are already buying, uh, uh, you know, shelters uh, in New Zealand or dreaming these wet dreams of creating multiplanetary life so they will save their asses uh, and go to Mars. Uh, but you have also this kind of radicalization of politics uh, uh, in which uh, classical traditional democracy, even electoral democracy, uh, is not here anymore. Uh, so unlike uh, Francis Fukuyama, what we have today is actually uh, the death of the end of history itself. We have the death of liberal democracy itself. And I would say that it was precisely liberal democracy itself uh, which has led to this situation today uh, with uh, austerity measures, indebtment, privatizations and so on. They actually created the fertile ground uh, for this uh, class struggle, which is now occurring uh, not only in the United States, but everywhere in the world. Of course, your question is, you know, how to deal with bigger threats uh, uh, and how to deal with bigger threats if we are still confined in the trap of nation states. Uh, because I don't think that particular nation states, whether it's uh, United States or Russia or France or Germany or whichever state, uh, can alone face and deal with the current crisis which we have, which is on the one hand the climate crisis, and on the other hand it is the pending nuclear threat, uh, which is higher than ever actually. Uh, so the real question is how do we go beyond this, I would say, anachronistic nation-state model? Uh, how do we reform or co completely re-innovate uh, major world institutions uh, which are not really doing their role uh, because what we face today is not just one lunatic in power in one particular country uh, it is the end of the world itself so it is not something which united states alone can solve which china can solve but actually as unpopular that might sound china and united states and russia as well and other countries should come together and start solving this major crisis that humanity is is facing because in 100 or 200 years we might look we might be nostalgic toward the towards the times uh, in which we are living today so is it possible then that we could have a global sort of awakening of consciousness of all the peoples of the world recognizing that they're in lifeboat earth together and the lifeboat 
is sinking. So as your book makes clear that the climate crisis and nuclear risks present humanity with a choice between radical reinvention of our way of life or the end of the world, eradication. So those are the stark choices. Yeah, let me let me try uh, to pose you a test question uh, and to you and maybe those who are listening to us, uh, whether you know what A74 stands for. A74. I mean, it's, it's, it's a rhetorical question because I also didn't know a few days ago. Uh, so apparently that's the name of the biggest I- Antarctic iceberg uh, that is currently drifting uh, uh, and uh, will probably be drifting for the next two years. Uh, it is uh, 40 times the size of Paris and 73 times the size of Manhattan. But I doubt that this is something which we will read every day in the newspapers. I doubt that even when people hear this uh, crazy news that there is an iceberg 73 times uh, bigger than Manhattan, which will stay here for two years and then it will melt and then it will radically change also uh, uh, the climate uh, of our very near future. I doubt that people actually can really understand it, me including. Uh, That's why in After the Apocalypse, uh, I use this term which I borrowed from the German philosopher Günther Anders, uh, which is uh, called supraliminal. Uh, You know, uh, usually when we speak about media propaganda uh, and uh, corporations trying to convince us to buy a new product, uh, we use the term subliminal, uh, which means that it is happening on a level uh, which is much lower than our consciousness can perceive. Uh, So someone is actually fucking with us and then in the end we go to the supermarket and we buy a product without even knowing why did we buy it, but, but we bought it because we saw uh, it's on television, for instance. Uh, but the term supraliminal means that something is so big uh, that we cannot perceive it anymore, that we cannot comprehend it anymore. And I would say this A74, this iceberg, is one perfect recent example. It is so big that it becomes supraliminal, that we have something what I call, also again borrowing from Günther Anders, what I call apocalyptic blindness, that we become blind towards the apocalypse. Uh, and I think climate crisis is one of these examples. And the other example is, of course, the nuclear threat, uh, because, it, because it's very difficult, even if we saw the bombs uh, which were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it is very difficult to understand what was happening for decades in the Pacific, uh, in the Marshall Islands, for, for instance, with all the nuclear tests by the United States. And it's very difficult to really understand what kind of consequences, if we know that Uh, radioactive decontamination can last for thousands of years, what kind of consequences this will have for the future. Uh, So the most important question is how do we deal with something what is supraliminal? Uh, How do we become not only aware of the apocalypse, but how do we actually act today if these threats are just multiplying and we have multiple threats at the same time? Uh, I wouldn't say the situation as dark as it might sound, uh, that the situation is so bad because I think uh, the current pandemic uh, didn't just serve as an accelerator of uh, very bad things, including surveillance, capitalism and biopolitics, but at the same time COVID-19 served as as a sort of X-ray machine, as a sort of uh, revelation in the original uh, meaning of the term uh, apocalypse, which uh, originally in Greek means uncovering, unveiling something. So the COVID-19 crisis, I think, unveiled the utter incompetence of uh, uh, nation states, 
the utter incompetence of governments. It also revealed in which way the rich only got richer, especially Amazon, Elon Musk, and so on. Uh, but at the same time, it also brought people together. I mean, it is it is sufficient uh, to look at the United States. It wasn't just Capitol Hill uh, as this kind of uh, international performance act, uh, which is reminding me of the 1920s and the Weimar Republic, but it was at the same time the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, look what's happening uh, in Colombia uh, these days. Look what's happening in Palestine. I would say that at this moment uh, you have uh, really a major planetary awareness about what is happening to, to the poor Palestinians. And you have so many solidarity marches, protests all around the world, even if many people are still confined or unvaccinated uh, uh, or living in a kind of a constant state of exception. So I would say that people are aware uh, uh, and, uh, you know, you don't have to tell to someone in Bangladesh or on the Marshall Islands that climate crisis is real. Uh, they are affected by it every day. But what we have today, and this is the unprecedented task of our generations, and we are the future generations, you know, the movements in the 70s were talking about, we are the future generations. Who know how many generations will still come? And we have this unprecedented task uh, to not only become aware of these uh, multiple planetary uh, eschatological or existential threats, but we have the duty and responsibility to act. And I think it's impossible, of course, we have to act on the local level, but it's impossible to really encounter these planetary threats unless uh, we internationalize them, because they are already internationalized, unless we go beyond the very concept of nation-state, unless uh, we have a new international planetary movement, which, which would go even beyond the very term international, because that still means inter-nations, you know. What we need is to go beyond the nations, uh, because, you know, in 100 or 200 years, uh, uh, it won't really matter whether you are from Bangladesh, from the United States, from Zagreb, or I don't know where, uh, because the sea levels will already be rising. Uh, and all these threats which we are seeing these days, you know, from earthquakes uh, to rising sea levels to uh, locust swarms to new pandemics and so on, this is really becoming our new normal. So, Shreko, when you talk about the Marshall Islands, you are combining, of course, the two threats, the nuclear emerging nuclear threat or the continuing nuclear threat and the threat of global warming with the oceans rising on these Pacific Islands where so much nuclear waste is because of the 1950s tests. You've got the Japanese now uh, releasing uh, tons and tons of radioactive water into the ocean. So the nuclear threat, in a way, is somewhat deceptive because we have the worst of both worlds. We have psychological disarmament, but not, but not physical disarmament from the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. They still have thousands of nuclear weapons each. What concerns me is that in Russia itself, it's possible that right-wing hardline nationalists could take over from Putin, like uh, Nikolai Petrushev, who's, who's the, the hawkish head of the National Security Council, who's challenging Putin from the right. So you have a combination of the worst of both worlds. You have national security and organized crime. You have the mafia and nuclear weapons. So does that concern you or do you accept that that notion? I mean, most people think that the most likely nuclear war would be between India and Pakistan, but 
I'm worried about the security of nuclear weapons in general, particularly in in Russia. Yeah, I must say I'm also worried about uh, the state of security of nuclear weapons in the United States. Uh, you know, didn't uh, those guys who stormed the Capitol kill uh, get very close, you know, to provoke uh, a nuclear war? Uh, and didn't something similar happen? I think it was a few years ago uh, when there there was this. You will probably remember a fake alarm that a nuclear missile was going towards Hawaii. And then, you know, at the same time, CIA was tweeting about pandas and Trump was playing golf. Uh, but someone could have misinterpreted or interpreted it right because there was an alert and actually a nuclear war could have happened. Uh, so, of course, I'm worried about that. But what I try to show in my book uh, after the apocalypse is that uh, we should be also very worried about other aspects of uh, the so-called nuclear threat. Uh, so uh, what worries me so much is not just simply nuclear weapons. Uh, of course, the situation is very bad. And it's not just United States, Russia, Pakistan, India. There are other players as well. Uh, but what worries me as well is also the use of uh, nuclear power uh, for different sorts of testings. Uh, you mentioned, we mentioned already the Marshall Islands. Uh, the Marshall Islands uh, is a place uh, in this part of the universe uh, which over a period, over 12 years, uh, uh, more than one Hiroshima-sized explosion happened per day. So can you imagine a Hiroshima per day, 12 years? Uh, and of course, the United States left. Uh, the, the nuclear waste was, uh, was not really managed as it was supposed to. Then climate crisis hits, uh, sea levels are rising, and you already have something what philosophically we could call a sort of new ontology, you know, that the very being of reality is changing because you have a combination of climate crisis and existing uh, nuclear decontamination. Uh, uh, what happened, for instance, these days in Fukushima is also uh, very worrying that, you know, the Japanese government decided uh, to dump uh, the contaminated uh, water into the Pacific. And they've been doing this already. So what I'm saying is you don't really need a nuclear war, you know, this is maybe Hollywood imagination that there will be a nuclear war or aliens and there will be a big major catastrophic event and then after that we will reach extinction. Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, we, we are constantly in the process of extinction and not only in the sense of all these species dying out and going extinct, uh, but also of our reality ontology uh, changing radically, transforming radically uh, into a process which is ongoing, which might be a slow decay, uh, which will, of course, be accompanied by civil wars, by uh, destruction, by maybe going back to some sort of uh, tribes or whatever, which you can see in science fiction today as well. Uh, what I'm really worried about is that there is no real difference between nuclear weapons and nuclear energy, uh, that as soon as you uh, invented the atomic bomb, uh, this is a knowledge uh, which we cannot unlearn anymore, and this is a knowledge which we are still using all across the world, uh, although there are other means of energy, although there are other sources of energy which are uh, much safer given the climate crisis, which is leading to rising sea levels, uh, which is uh, leading to stronger storms, which can then affect nuclear power plants and so on. Uh, my point was that besides this, also the nuclear tests are still ongoing, and these are not tests at all. Uh, these are events 
which are already leaving a mark on, on planet Earth. And of course, the other twin concurrent catastrophe in a way is that very notion that progress and catastrophe are two sides of the same coin. So capitalism itself depends upon growth, upon quarterly growth reports. So it's by nature extractive, and there's a limit to what the earth can endure. So one of the things that happened during this COVID pandemic was the fact that we weren't commuting so much. We weren't stuck on the freeways, poisoning the air, crawling along, going to work and coming back from work. People have now discovered that they can work from home. And there was a a significant drop in global CO2 emissions in this last year as a result of COVID. So it's in a way, the lessons are being presented to us, aren't, aren't they? Uh, of course, uh, but I'm afraid that people will easily forget. And I'm also f- uh, afraid that these short moments uh, when, you know, the cities were calm and uh, there was not so much air traffic and uh, uh, ships, uh, uh, which are usually transporting the products uh, globally, that they were also still for a moment, uh, that that's, that will be distant uh, past very soon. Uh, Although what you could have seen is that a simple virus or, I mean, remember Evergreen, uh, that ship which was stuck in the Suez Canal, you know, a ship going stuck in the Suez Canal can actually uh, uh, contribute uh, uh, to less CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, Maybe that's uh, uh, an instructive example uh, how only in a few days, uh, if global transport uh, goes to a halt, uh, or stops for a sudden moment, in which way that can actually contribute uh, uh, to, to the planet itself. Uh, now, of course, this is very complicated because uh, more than 90% of uh, global transport still depends on, on ships, uh, which are, you know, uh, floating around the oceans. Uh, but that's another reason why we should go thinking in the direction of uh, radically transforming uh, in the way extractive capitalism functions getting rid of this extractive uh, uh, capitalism, which is based on extracting more resources, more values. And you mentioned that we are now working from home. You know, what worries me is not just that this system, which is based on this illusion of progress, illusion of growth, uh, uh, because growth, this kind of growth is nothing else but actually a pre-programmed self-destruction, I would say, Uh, but that this system now is not only extracting resources anymore, uh, from from the earth itself, but it's actually all the time, and we could have seen it now with COVID-19 and with this uh, never-ending zoomification of life, that it is more and more actually extracting uh, something what I would call libidinal economy, that it is extracting our own souls. You know, everyone who works uh, from home these days, uh, although these people are very privileged, of course, uh, because there are many others on the so-called frontline who don't even have the luxury to work from home, but many of those who work from home uh, very often have the feeling that uh, something more is being extracted from them than simply their time, you know. And when I say something more, it is attention, it is emotions, it is very often unconscious, the unconscious itself which is being extracted. So we don't even know that we are being exploited anymore. Uh, And 
maybe at the beginning of the pandemic, many people were happy, oh, I can finally stay at home, I have more time and so on. Uh, but one year later, at least myself, I don't know about you, uh, I'm very tired of that because, you know, what is disappearing with this is the home itself. Uh, previously, we had a home in the sense that you could retreat to home, you could meet your friends, have a dinner, you can have private conversations uh, with your children or your family, uh, you could just simply read a book and so on. But these days, I think uh, the home itself become a pu public space. Uh, we are all having this kind of conversations or public events, semi-public events uh, from our homes, which are then hosted on platforms of Silicon Valley companies. So again, you don't have really a public space in the sense of a public square or, a, you know, public TV or a theater or a cafe even, you know, even a coffee shop is very often a very political space because you can meet people, discuss politics, you can go for a protest after it. And what is most important in this non-digital space, what happens is something which is spontaneous. You know, you can have encounters or your life can go into directions which you didn't even dream of. And what is happening now is that uh, we are actually all becoming machinic slaves. I don't know how else to put it, but we are all becoming slaves of the technology itself. Uh, uh, and it's very dangerous because many people are not really aware that they are becoming less and less free, but they actually think they are becoming more and more free because they are connected, they are online constantly and so on. They can order contactless delivery of food to their door and then in a few years they will drive in self-driveless cars. But the basic problem of capitalism persists and the basic problem of capitalism is this notion of progress, the notion that we are heading somewhere in the same way as the end of history, that we are heading somewhere which will be better. Uh, but at the same time, even if some cars will be green, even if, uh, you know, we will order food and it will come to our doorsteps, uh, this doesn't mean that extraction, expansion and exploitation is ending. Actually, on the contrary, I think it is deepening and deepening even more. And at one point, uh, it will just go over the threshold and there will be no return anymore. And the second chapter of your new book, After the Apocalypse, is titled The Nuclear Age, Enjoy Chernobyl, Die Later. You went to Chernobyl, right, as a, what would you describe yourself as, a, a catastrophe tourist? Yeah, I think that's a very well, uh, that's a very good description. I went there as a, as a tourist because what I wanted to see is... Uh, precisely this tourist experience. You know, many people these days go to Chernobyl uh, with the so-called stalkers. Uh, you will remember this term from, from the brilliant movie by Andrei Tarkovsky. But these days, these are uh, the people in the so-called alienation zone or exclusion zone, which is much bigger than Chernobyl itself, uh, who are drifting there, who are even living there. And, uh, you know, if you uh, are really an adventurous spirit, you can go there and see things which you won't see with these classical tourist trips. But I wanted to go on a tourist trip. And why? Because uh, I was interested in this, what I call in, in my book, uh, commodification of the apocalypse. Uh, in this, uh, uh, not only, it's not only tourism, it is connected to everything now. It is connected to fashion. Uh, you could have seen that even Tinder had this swipe night. Uh, or still has it, I'm not using it, uh, but I'm just reading about it and I have some friends who used it, uh, which use also the apocalypse uh, as the main context 
of dating. So you can see that the apocalypse is becoming becoming commodified. And if you go to Chernobyl in this kind of tourist trip, which became very popular after the HBO series Chernobyl, of course, uh, you will come there and you will see that you can buy souvenirs, uh, even the guides who will lead you through Pripyat, uh, which was that city where more than 45,000 people were evacuated uh, because of uh, Reactor 4. Uh, you will come to the city and then the guide will actually show you pictures from the HBO series and say, oh, this is the place which in the HBO series was presented like this. And you, t you can see that not only a sort of mediation is uh, 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 happening here, but also a commodification that we are actually at one point that was before the pandemic, uh, but I think we are behaving similarly to the pandemic itself. You can see it with the fashionable face masks, for instance, and so on, uh, that uh, one way of reacting to, to, to such events, one way of reacting to such uh, apocalypses is actually to commodify it because it's very difficult to understand it. And when you come to the to Chernobyl, uh, I mean, I can tell you I wasn't there uh, for, for a long time and I was a tourist, as I say, uh, but you can sense something which is, again, supraliminal, which is much bigger than you can even understand. First of all, because you cannot see radioactivity, you can only see the consequences. In this respect, it may be that's similar to COVID-19 uh, uh, because the threat uh, is in a way invisible already, although it's not really invisible, and its consequences uh, will last for decades. In the same way as COVID-19, even if the pandemic uh, uh, is, uh, you know, put under control uh, to certain degrees in certain countries, mainly in, in the so-called West, which is again uh, uh, a very result of Western policies, which uh, were vaccinating their people first, and everyone had this uh, first me perspective. Uh, but even if it, this pandemic uh, goes under control also in other countries, mainly in the global south, look what's happening in Argentina, in India, in Brazil, in Africa, uh, uh, the consequences of this pandemic will take decades. In the same way the Spanish flu changed uh, Earth, in the same way the Black Death uh, uh, led, for instance, uh, to the destruction of feudalism and led actually also to the industrial revolution and capitalism. So I think we have to have this long-term perspective in front of us, as difficult as it is, because we are all, of course, worried uh, by, our, by, by our daily worries. And it's very difficult to plan the next week and not to say to, to plan for the next 10 years or 100 years, which humanity as such should be doing. So just in the last couple of minutes, why don't we talk about how radical reinvention of the world is necessary, but also possible. So let's try and end on a hopeful note here, even though the title of your book is After the Apocalypse. Yeah, but again, I mean, it might sound uh, very depressive, and it was, to be honest with you, a very depressing uh, uh, few years of working on the books. So I would literally wake up and Google the apocalypse every day. Uh, because I really wanted to understand how this term is being used. Uh, but then suddenly the pandemic happened and later afterwards uh, a lot of earthquake happens in, in Zagreb, Croatia. Uh, that also brought me to try to understand uh, the reality of multiple threats. Uh, because it's not just pandemic, it's utter air pollution, it's earthquake, it's volcanoes as you can see in Congo now. Uh, and all these combined are, are actually an explosive mix. Uh, which is on the one hand very difficult to understand, but it's also very difficult to react to it. 
but to be hopeful, I think the very title of the book after the apocalypse is already hopeful. Uh, the main point is that the revelation already happened, all different revelations, and now it's up to us to react to it and to radically re reinvent the present. Uh, I would say on the one hand, the radical reinvention has to go uh, in the direction of reinventing planetary institutions, uh, because I think it's not nations or governments alone or one block or the other block uh, which can lead us out, out of the crisis. It has to be a planetary response by humanity itself and not only for humanity, but also for other species, for the biosphere itself and the, for, for, for the future itself. Because maybe in 500 years there won't be humanity as such, maybe there will be something else. Maybe in one million years an alien will land, maybe they already landed, who, who knows. Uh, and the consequences of humanity or of capitalism will be left on Earth. So I would say our major task is to recreate this spirit of internationalism, uh, but also to organize it. It's not just uh, uh, enough to, to, to have a spirit, it is important to have organization. And on the other hand, I think at the same time, at the very same time, so it's not an either or, uh, we have to be constructing a radically different reality, temporality, social bonds, uh, a complete social transformation on the local level. Uh, we have to be creating sort of autonomous zones, uh, even counting on the disappearance of the nation state. You know, even if the nation state is back big time, you can see together with nationalism, to, together with this Cold War, new Cold War between USA, USA and China. Uh, but I can personally imagine a future where, you know, nation states uh, will disappear. And I would love to actually imagine such a future, which doesn't have to be better than this, of course. But what we have to do today is to make sure that this future will be better than, uh, than our contemporary reality. Uh, to be more concrete, that means uh, what you could have seen already with the pandemic, you know, it wasn't just surveillance and biopolitics and all this state of exception which happened, which happened together with, uh, with COVID-19. It was at the same time solidarity, mutual aid, but very concrete mutual aid, you know, which is a concept which was being discussed by anarchists like Elisee Reclus or Peter Kropotkin 150 years ago, but you could have seen it today in action. You can see cooperation, uh, you can see how important it is to invent different models of economy, which wouldn't function, you know, uh, not even on money. Uh, uh, you know, these are all the questions uh, which we have to pose in our own reality. And in this sense, I think COVID-19 was an apocalypse, was a revelation, because uh, many people really changed their lives. Of course, it's very difficult, difficult to change your own character because uh, it's an accumulation of education, experience and encounters you had in life. But these kind of catastrophic events, which are planetary catastrophic events, actually lead people to radically rethink priorities in their lives. What is important? What is not important? What's the importance of friendship? What's the importance of love? What's the importance of solidarity? And I can see it everywhere in the world that people are actually reinventing it and again understanding the importance of something which is not money, which is not progress, uh, which is not buying a new car or a new house, but actually something which is priceless, something which is, you know, love. If you commodify love, this is the end of love. Uh, the same goes for friendship. So I think we have this kind of revolution against the commodification of everything. Uh, of course, the threats are big and it's not just climate crisis 
or the nuclear threat. It's also the developments in technology, artificial intelligence, automation, and actually the fact uh, that uh, all this technology is owned by a few white male dudes from Silicon Valley or by China on the other hand, you know, so I'm not here playing the China card. I think we should encounter, we should face both problems. Uh, and, uh, but I remain hopeful in my previous book, Poetry from the Future, I was talking about hope without optimism uh, in the sense that, you know, I think optimism will not lead us very far because we will have a very unrealistic perspective of the future. Uh, depression or pessimism will also not lead us anywhere, but we need this kind of hope without optimism. And I think this is the way out. Well, Zesko Horvath, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, thank you so much for this inspiring conversation, and I'll be glad to come back at any time after the apocalypse. <laughs> and again, I've been speaking with Fresco Horvath, who is the philosopher and author. He's published more than 10 books, translated into 15 languages, including Poetry from the Future, What Does Europe Want, uh, Welcome to the Desert of Post-Socialism, and The Radicality of Love. He's the co-founder of, of the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, and a council member of the Progressive International. And his latest book just out is After the Apocalypse. And we're going to take a brief station break, and we're back with a broadcast of Background Briefings program from November the 14th of 2021, when we discussed how a fragile planet is hanging by a thread, and the last thing it needs is a meek and weak COP26 agreement. It's not the end of the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Laurie Laybourne Langton, an award-winning researcher and writer and an associate fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research, where he leads a project developing policy responses to environmental breakdown. Previously, he was the director of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change and has also worked in the House of Lords, where he focused on post-crash macroeconomic policy, and he's the author of Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laurie Laybourne Langton. It's good to be here. Good to be talking to you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Secretary General of the UN has, has made the comment that our fragile planet is hanging by a thread. And in response to the final agreement coming out of COP26 in Glasgow over this weekend, Greenpeace is talking about the agreement as being weak and meek. How does it strike you, Laurie? I think we've got to separate how we think about it into two areas where there should be progress. One is relative progress, so how far we've come uh, in comparison to where we were before. And in that, in, if you look at it in that way, there has been some relative progress. We've recognised, for example, that methane, one of the many greenhouse gases, not just just CO2, uh, has been recognised as a major threat and countries have made promises around that. We've also had this initiative from Mark Carney, the former, former uh, governor of the Bank of England, around uh, more and more uh, asset managing organisations and uh, people that move money saying that they're going to stick to net zero targets. 
But what we really care about when it comes to the, when it comes to the environment is absolute progress, right? So not just how far we've come relative to where we were before, it's how far we need to go to ensure that we stabilize, restabilize an environment that's been heavily destabilized by releasing emissions or destroying forests or destroying biodiversity. And in that respect, we are just not near where we need to be. The commitments that countries were making up uh, to COP26 and then subsequent to COP26 are just not anywhere near what we need to ensure that temperatures are kept below 1.5 degrees and to stop those really dangerous, potentially catastrophic impacts happening in the near future. Well, the president of the COP26, Alak Sharma, uh, has said that this historic deal will keep the 1.5 degree centigrade limit within reach. A lot of scientific evidence indicates that you know, we're nowhere near that goal. And what it, we're, we've actually, at the point of it's 1.2 degrees Celsius mm -hmm. above the 19th century level, isn't it? So we're, we're pretty close to 1.5 already. Yeah, we should, we should always make sure that we say 1.5 is the goal because science has told us that if we start to, or the more we go above this, the more dangerous things become, right? Now, it's already a global disaster in many respects. Countries around the world, particularly in Africa, are already having to deal with very negative impacts on how they produce, how they can produce food, on other elements related to the weather. In Africa, uh, you've got countries spending as much as 10% of their GDP or money equivalent to that on dealing with these negative impacts already, right? And the further we go above 1.5, the worse those impacts become. Now, that doesn't mean that it's all safe at 1.5 at 1.49 or whatever and suddenly becomes very dangerous at 1.5 it's a it's a kind of carbon highway to hell and we need to get off as quick as we can and it's difficult i will say this it is difficult to look at the current state of things and say that with the promises on the table which are not sufficient with the action that then governments are taking which is not sufficient it's very difficult to say that we could be limiting to 1.5 anytime soon but we must never ever let go of that goal because ultimately we can restore what has happened to the natural world and we can bring the temperature down, right? So when you're emitting, if we stopped emitting, if we, if we just stopped emitting tomorrow, if that was possible, the temperature rise would halt, right? And if we started to repair nature, so more carbon is sucked down from the atmosphere, then the temperature rise hopefully would roll back. And that's always within our agency or is at the moment. If it gets really bad, if we go to temperatures that are way more, much more than two degrees, then we start to lose our agency over the natural world. But at the moment, we have that agency still. We just need the right commitments. and We need the right government action, which we're not getting at the moment. And you mentioned uh, the agreement on methane to reduce it by 30% by the end of the decade. Mm. And there are some possible technical fixes as well. Uh, there's no technical fix for scrubbing CO2 out of the atmosphere that I know of, except nuclear submarines, and they have nuclear reactors. So the agreement that has gotten a lot of attention and some derision, I guess, is that China and India and South Africa joined together to water down getting rid of coal and changing the language of the final agreement from a mm -hmm. phase-out to a phase-down. Now, when you talk about loss and damage in the third world, what would replace these coal fire plants? I mean, is there sort of portable technology 
available. You know, wind and solar, of course, can work up to a limited degree depending on when the wind blows and when the sun shines. But, I mean, I'm not suggesting in any way that we shouldn't get rid of coal because it's such a clear, low-hanging mm-hmm. fruit. And we have a problem here in the United States saying the entire agenda of Biden's uh, is hanging by a thread because of uh, a coal senator whose family company is in the coal business, uh, Joe Manchin. So, and, you know, Australia is, is also a sort of a problem here in the sense that they export coal. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can see that that's a doable thing, but is the resistance to do with the fact that there is no way to replace, you know, India being an example, is it because they can't replace coal in rural areas? What's the rationale for keeping coal going? The Chinese, of course, are, are doing it too, even though they acknowledge that coal is one of the worst generators of CO2. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, let me let me deal with two things there. The, the first, the immediate question you just asked about the rationale of not getting rid of coal, and then I want to talk a bit about the politics of coal. On the first, South Africa, you mentioned them, is a good example of this. They are. They have a, a, a public company, ESCOM, uh, that manages their energy supply, largely coal, and they're having major problems with that um, at the moment. And of course, are not necessarily making the transition to renewables, which can happen. There is abundant sunlight. There is abundant wind in South Africa, and technology is improving all the time with these uh, sources of electricity, which are already some of the cheapest in history. The issue here is funding. The country, ESCOM in particular, doesn't necessarily have the money to invest now in building up that renewables capacity. And that sits at the heart of the overall demand from countries in Africa, from across the global south, that more money needs to be given to them to help them make this transition. They haven't got the startup funds in some cases to make that transition and then to get the ball rolling. And as we've seen in in Western countries like the UK and the US, once you get the ball rolling, once you go past this tipping point, you get this massive rollout of these technologies and it can become a key part of the grid quite quickly. So it's possible, it's very difficult for countries that don't necessarily have the resources that they can make those upfront investments. And that is why it is highly disappointing that wealthy countries have not yet followed through on their promise. And they didn't manage to do this in Glasgow of providing $100 billion a year. That's all that they promised to a year to help with this. Now, with the politics of coal, um, we still find ourselves in a situation where the current reliance on coal by many countries around the world, including uh, elements of the US, um, is being exploited by a lot of vested interests. You, you mentioned the, 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 dear, the dear Democratic sense in, the, in the, the US there, to exploiting that sort of weakness in the heart of economies at the moment where there's that reliance on coal to extend its life, which is highly dangerous. And the movements, the political movements that we've seen in recent years need to increasingly target those who are dragging their feet on phasing out coal. And in the case of of elected politics, we've got to, and we are seeing this, see the maturation of those movements into frontline politics, because increasingly they speak for the majority and those who are are saying we should continue the use of coal, even though we have renewable alternatives, are, are not speaking for the majority. And again, I'm speaking with Laurie Leibon Langton, an award-winning researcher and writer and an associate fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research, where he leads a project developing 
policy responses to environmental breakdown. And previously, he was the director of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. And he also worked in the House of Lords, where he focused on post-crash macroeconomic policy and is the author of Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. He joins us from the UK, where the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow have just concluded with an agreement that most observers see as somewhat underwhelming. Of course, in a year's time, they're going to meet again in Egypt to see how far they've gone and maybe try and improve on some of the targets here. But just to continue the conversation about the north-south divide and the lack of investment, for example, in South Africa, its own energy company, what about the possibility, though, of just having some kind of portable electric generating systems of wind and solar that the richer nations could actually just simply, rather than have to have these companies that don't have the investment sort of languishing, why not just be able to come up with portable electric generating? Is, is that possible? Is that doable? I'm not completely on top of the, the latest state of portable technology. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, capability on in a domestic setting for this, uh, particularly when it comes to cooking and, and other applications that are often in many parts of the global south reliant on burning wood or or other combustible fuels but an element of all of this is that the 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 countries on the front line of this are predominantly find themselves in the global south across the continent of africa in southeast asia parts of of south america as well are we you know we know this this is now a a key uh, narrative in politics that we're all hearing they they are already feeling the impacts disproportionately to other countries around the world, even countries like the US or in Canada with the extreme heat that we've seen recently in other parts of the world. The impacts are often missed by elements of the media, which are largely placed in these in uh, in Western countries. So these impacts are growing and growing in these countries, and they contributed the least. When it comes to the support of global North countries in helping global South countries have those investments, get renewables on the ground, it is still very important that those countries are able to shape their own future, that they get to do this themselves. You know, this has got to be part of a wider process of rebalancing what have been extreme power imbalances across the global economy that have led us into this very dangerous situation now, where you know, there's this sort of grotesque chaos, and I'm speaking as a British person here, of former British colonies who are still dealing with the aftershocks of the imperial colonial era, who then now have to face the, the, the dark reality of the impacts of the climate crisis, which they did not cause. And within that very uh, sticky and unfair politics, we've got to make sure that if in that moment of peril, countries like the UK or the US are helping those in the global south, they're doing it in a way in which those countries in the global south can not just preserve, but expand their agency. So I would like to see investment as grants, for example, and not loans in those countries so that they can chart their renewable, greener, healthier future uh, themselves. So in terms, though, of investments and pledges versus damaging from the increasingly roiling climate that we have, Mm. it's getting worse. It's just manifestly clear. 
and every year we have worse hurricanes here in, in the U.S., floods, fires here in California. You mentioned the heat and fires in Canada. It's all so obvious, and the losses are huge. I mean, mm. the rich nations are the ones that are, have, <laughs> have the most to lose, right, in that sense. So is there a dynamic there? In other words, in terms of political lobbies, you've got ExxonMobil and others that talk a good game but are actually you know, involved in greenwashing and, and mm-hmm. furtive sort of <laughs> surreptitious conversations in the back rooms with lobbying, etc. Can you pit them against, say, insurance companies that are going to be taking massive hits? In other words, is there a business lobby that can really get behind the need to transition to renewables in this short window we have to hold the temperature down to 1.5, which many scientists think is pretty unrealistic in any case. Yes, um, and in some ways that's already happened. The Particularly the reinsurance industry, those who come in to insure places that have already suffered, uh, have always been at the forefront of at least researching and and sort of cajoling, doing research on the on the problem, and also cajoling people to to do something about it. Um, and I think I think you're right. I think as time goes on, and we're already largely there, the number of people who will suffer from the problem and the impacts of it, the the extreme weather, the extreme weather, not just the direct impacts like extreme weather, but but the the knock on effects, right? So. A great fear is that you you get extreme weather events hitting some of the the large breadbasket regions, the, the, the areas where food production predominates in the US, for example, and that will have an impact potentially globally on food prices, on availability of food, which can ripple out and disrupt already destabilized societies. So the the number of people who are are feeling this and suffering from it is growing. And also, as the cost of renewables plummets and the other technologies that we need to be using uh, get cheaper and are used more and more, you will get more people who also benefit from the solution as well. And we, but we still need, those things are happening, but we still need direct intervention from campaigners and others to expose the political lying and lobbying of people like the fossil fuel industry and to unseat them, to make them a sort of odious taboo, like we've often seen in the case of, say, tobacco now or other or other industries similar to that. And on the other side, we need more government intervention to stimulate markets in the right direction. Now, hang on, I'm going to very quickly explain what I mean by that. I don't look, think of the pandemic, right? Over here in the UK, we had one type of government intervention, which was to say to people, you've got to stay at home so we all don't let the virus spread. You then had another complementary type of government intervention, which was also to say, you're at home because we told you to be. We will now provide you with money so that you can survive at home if you can't go to work. This is our furlough scheme that other countries did around the world. And we will also invest massively in developing and then handing out vaccines. Right. And it's those two elements, the sorry, you've got to now do this and we'll make it easier for you by giving you money or investing in the technologies that make it easy for you. We are not yet seeing the scale and pace of government action along both of those lines that the current emergency situation, and it is now a global emergency situation with the climate crisis, we're not seeing the scale of that government intervention on both those sides that we really need. Well, Laurie Leiburn-Langdon, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
My pleasure. Good to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Laurie Laban Langton, who is an award-winning research and writer and associate fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research in the UK, where he leads a project developing policy responses to environmental breakdown. Previously, he was the director of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change and has also worked in the House of Lords, where he focused on post-crash macroeconomic policy. And he's the author of Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.